Hello and welcome to the Wicked Ones podcast. This is Jen. And this is Tara. And this will be the last time you hear from us in 2020. Yes, it is. So hopefully 2021 will bring all things better. If it's been a bad year for you. If it hasn't, hey, hopefully things continue. Yeah, good no, for you. Hang on tight. You, you've almost survived 2020. Almost. You are so close. <laughs> Don't give up now. We're, we're almost there. Mm-hmm. And we... Uh, have some exciting things planned for us and this podcast in 2021. We do. Along with trying to end useless <laughs> chatter, so hang in there with us. Yeah. We don't get to talk to a lot of people. No, we so. don't get to socialize. So when we're chatting with you, we're like, oh, we get to talk to people. And we've realized that we might have overdone it a little bit there. So. You don't care that we got our garage door fixed <laughs> or that we downsized our homes. I mean, you, you, maybe you do. Bless you if you do. That's fantastic. But we're going to try to just get more, more yeah. down, less, you know, less chatter, inane chatter and more down to business. Just like we're doing right now. <laughs> no chatter. No chatter at all. <laughs> Uh, so what do you have for me today? This is the last story of 2020. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Oh, and it's a different one for me too. I know last week you um, you kind of went a different direction and talked about the Italian hall disaster, which um, I appreciated learning a little bit more about about that. Because, you know, there's just so many things in our in our country's history that I just don't know enough about. And it's it's really interesting to learn. So I chose for this week uh, the Christmas Eve tragedy in West Webster, New York. Have you heard of this one? I heard of it, but I don't know any details. Mm-hmm. This one was tough to put pen to paper to and get it started because, as always, we tell the story, we get into the crime, we discuss our thoughts. I know sometimes we have to put focus on the bad guy. You just do in order to tell the story. But my hope today is to put more focus on the victims and who they were as I dive into this incredibly senseless tragedy involving the horrific ambush of brave first responders and the issues at hand in regards to our laws that oftentimes don't seem to be strict enough to keep killers behind bars. So this is just what I got out of the story that I'm going to share. So my story today begins in the small town of West Webster with a population of 5,000, a small close-knit community, and a suburb of Rochester, New York, obviously much larger kind of like our community, you know, here as a suburb of Chicago. So picture a small strip of, of land along Lake Ontario with uh, a sprinkling of homes. It's where people come to vacation on the lake and go boating. Interestingly enough, we've been talking a bit about murder houses and your story on the, you know, the Los Feliz murder mansion and a little bit about whether or not we could see ourselves moving into these houses or if it'd be too creepy. So interestingly enough, I have a little, a little uh, note in here that in West Webster, on that small strip of land that I just described, was a home located on Lake Road. Because it seems like every every strip of land located on a lake with homes is Lake Road or Lake Shore or Lake something, <laughs> lake right? Drive. I mean, just, yeah. Nobody gets that. It doesn't get very, very different than that. But um, it had a very similar history to your story in that um, in that home, a man named William Spangler Jr. had brutally attacked and murdered his 92-year-old grandmother, Rose, with a hammer back in 1980. So Spangler only served a mere 17 years in prison for the murder, and upon release, he moved back to his childhood home located at 191 Lake Road, next to his grandmother's old home. 
Upon meeting his new neighbors who had purchased the home his grandmother used to reside in, Amy Warner and her boyfriend at the time, Amy had said that with only, within only 15 minutes of meeting him, he had volunteered the information about the murder. He even walked over and pointed at the staircase in their new home where he committed the crime. He said, and I quote, I was on drugs and I wanted money for drugs and my grandmother wouldn't give it to me. That's horrifying. Isn't that, like, can you imagine? How did, wait, so he had the house next door? Mm-hmm. That's where he grew up. He moved back home? He, he did move back home, and i talk about that in just a minute. But Amy recalled that they ripped out the staircase because it was creepy. No shit, Amy. Well, creepy. Um, but she didn't think twice about purchasing the home because she said Spangler had served his time. But she probably didn't know that he was going to move back next door. That, so I, that I think that things. she probably did because Heidi Ho neighbor and hey, by the way, yeah. I mean, they still, she knew before I think she that made she the purchase. Did. It didn't, I mean, didn't quite say in the article, but it just sounds like she knew ahead of time and they bought the home anyway. Hmm. So, I mean, sorry, Amy, I'm pretty sure I would have The murder is one, one thing, but the murder and then the murderer living next right? door takes it to a different level. Thank you. That's, That's where yes. I have to draw the line. That's what I wrote down. Just knowingly neighboring with a killer in a home where the victim resided. Yeah, that's just, that's just a whole different level a of crazy. Too much. Yeah. So Spangler is released from serving his time in New York State Prison on manslaughter charges in 1998. And I should note here, he was given a reduced sentence during the start of his trial for second degree murder, which is what it was originally, he was originally on trial for, but they reduced it to manslaughter. Because he pled guilty, um, and he said he did so to spare his family the pain of a trial. So they gave him manslaughter, which reduced the sentence. Okay? After his release, he was on probation until 2006 and reportedly lived a quiet life with his mother and sister. So he moved back home. In June of 2010, he accompanied his young neighbor, 21-year-old Don Nguyen, to a Gander Mountain store in nearby Henrietta where he picked out a few guns that she proceeded to purchase for him since he's a convicted felon and not allowed to buy, own, or possess a gun himself. Okay. How old is he at this time? He, how old is he? I want to say he was, like, in his, like, late 50s, because he's about 62 when the events take place. And his 21-year-old friend is purchasing -old guns friends. on his behalf. Yeah. Just making sure I'm following. Totally normal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Do it all the time. Don purchased a 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun and a Bushmaster semi-automatic rifle for William. Because well, those are... Oh, yeah. I'm going to go shooting. Mm -hmm. Totally God. normal. Totally normal. Nothing, nothing suspicious <gasps> here. So she falsely signs the paperwork stating that she would be the owner of the weapons. We'll get more into this a little bit later, but this sets up some things to come. Okay? And also lets me stress to people out there... Please do not purchase a gun for anyone else, especially an ex-convict neighbor. Okay? Never a good idea. There's a reason they can't have a gun. Yeah. Yes. Fast forward to 2012, William is still living with his mother, who he's incredibly close to, but also with a sister that he despised. A friend of the family said that, and I quote, he could not stand his sister Cheryl. Their mother Eileen had been sick, and sadly, she passed in October of that year, and he was completely devastated. So I think we can safely say this is a trigger event for him. That along with the fact that Cheryl, in an attempt to distance herself, now that she has no, you know, she's no longer in the home caring for her mother, um, and she recently, she had recently decided to buy a house in nearby Henrietta, and she had plans to put their childhood home up for sale. 
So all of these things are probably, I'm guessing, stressors, triggers for him to completely lose his it mind. It sounds like he has one of those weird mommy issues. It does. Well, and it's interesting a... that both grown children are living at home with mom. Mm-hmm. You know? Because she was older, too. She was in her 60s. That's very weird. Yeah. So I, I, didn't, I didn't find a whole lot on Cheryl's past, but I don't believe she was married. In the early morning hours of December 24th, Christmas Eve of 2012, sometime before 5.30 a.m., William would shoot his sister Cheryl in the head, apparently while she was sleeping, and then he then proceeded to set fire to her 2010 Ford Explorer, which engulfed in flames and spread to their late mother's Dodge Charger, and then eventually to their home. Arms in a garage? It, you know, it didn't really say if it was next to the home or in a garage. I'm imagining it was probably... In like an attached garage. Where you could see the fire, because I believe that that's what a vacationer from one of the rental homes called 911, and it said in one of the articles it was from the fire of the car. Gotcha. But I mean, eventually, I mean, it takes no time at all to spread. Mm-hmm. So armed with three guns, a Smith & Wesson 38, and the 12-gauge shotgun and semi-automatic Bushmaster rifle, he left his home pinned a handwritten note on a fence nearby, tucked himself behind a small hill near the home, and laid in wait. The West Webster firemen on duty that morning woke, geared up, and raced out to do what they love, helping people in their community, fighting these fires, and doing their best to keep people safe. Little did they know that a crazed gunman would be waiting for them, that he had set up this this fire as an ambush and intended on burning down as much of his neighborhood and killing as many people as possible. Volunteer firefighters arriving first on the scene, 43-year-old Mike Ciparini and 19-year-old Thomas Kachuka, were immediately met with a hail of bullets, shattering the windshield of the fire truck as they pulled up to the home, resulting in their deaths. Two other firefighters arriving in their personal vehicles were struck as well. Joseph Hofstetter shot in the pelvis with the bullet lodging in his spine, and Theodore Scardino, who was shot in the chest and knee. Both would later be hospitalized for serious injuries, but would thankfully survive. Several firefighters went beneath the truck to shield themselves as an off-duty police officer, John Ritter, arrived on the scene. In an interview from his home, Ritter said that he was driving to work around 5.35 a.m. on Monday when he suddenly came upon the scene. He had no scanner in his car and also didn't have a weapon. He said, and I quote, I came around the corner and the fire truck is in the road backing up on the left as he shows a deep bruise on his left breast area and cuts and cuts all over his left arm. He says, I hear popping, several pops. Suddenly my windshield explodes and there's a hole right in front of my head. I was in shock. I leaned over to the passenger seat and slammed it in reverse around the corner, out of line of sight. It was also said that he blocked the roadway, preventing more firefighters from coming up the road, which may have resulted in saving more lives. Chief Pickering of the West Webster Fire Department made a statement that the first officer who had arrived on the scene chased and exchanged fire with Spangler, recounting, uh, recounting it on his radio. And this is, what, uh, this is what came over the radio. I could see the muzzle blast coming at me. I fired four shots at him. I thought he went down. At another point, he says, I don't know if I hit him or not. He's by a tree. He was moving eastbound on the berm when I was firing shots. So it's chaos. They're trying to figure out if they're yeah, he's he's chasing him, he's shooting. Obviously, you have to be so careful in those situations, you can't get too close. When you, you're in a residential area. Mm-hmm. P- 
Pickering, although not releasing a name, portrayed this officer, a hero who saved many lives. And Jen, I searched and Googled, and I will still keep looking, but I couldn't find a name. Interesting. To go with that officer. I know. It was very anonymous. Um, but he is a hero, and he deserves... Wouldn't that be public record? Yeah, you would think. Maybe I just didn't look in the right spots. I feel like maybe your research is a little bit more uh, <laughs> thorough than mine. <laughs> I don't but think so. Even but... when I was researching this, most of the things that, that came up were from... 2012 and everything even murderpedia had stuff that hadn't been um like like they were saying that cheryl's body hadn't even been like identified yet they didn't know if that was her they didn't know how she died and this is all supposedly up to date but it's not it's still almost like frozen in 2012 kind of so i had a hard time finding bits and bits here and there that i wanted to go with my story um but because of the, cr- the crime scene, firefighters had no choice but to sit back and let the flames spread. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. They could not safely go in to fight the fire until around 11.30 a.m., nearly six hours later, once the gunman was confirmed dead. At that time, they had found Spangler, who ran after getting shot at, lying near a berm by the homes with the 38 by his side. Two bullets were missing from the chamber, seemingly one for his sister, and then the one saved for his own suicide after... Like, in the aftermath, whenever he felt was the time. So, besides the Spangler residence, six neighboring homes burned to the ground, and two others were deemed uninhabitable. At some point during the commotion, SWAT was able to escort more than 30 residents of the area to a bus that took them safely away from the neighborhood as they hunted for um, the gunmen. That's horrible. Can you imagine? No, that's horrible. You're, you're being bussed away from your neighborhood in the early hours of Christmas Eve, and your homes are burning down, and there's... And sitting People in that bus lying. thinking you're a target. Yeah. Well, and then also knowing as firemen hiding underneath that that fire truck and knowing that your comrades have been shot and no one can even get to you them. Can't get there. You can't help them. I remember listening to one. I mean, I didn't. I didn't take take notes on it, but because um, I just I my sources were all over the place, but I found one interview with. Um, one of the surviving officers who was shot and injured, but he said that he was shot and then he crawled underneath the fire truck and he thought he might be under there for five, ten minutes. He was under there for over an hour and a half before anyone could get to him. So he could have bled out. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's lucky to be alive. And who knows if they could have gotten to the men inside the truck. If Any sooner. I don't know if it would have made a difference. It doesn't sound like it would have. <sighs> and you know... All of the stories we share are tragic and awful and incredibly sad to dig into, but this one so far, I would say, was probably one of the hardest for me to put together. And I might say that every other case, but I, I broke down and cried several times reading about the funeral services for the for these heroes, and it's just, it's so sad and senseless and unfair. And again, I know they all are. I don't want to take it, I don't want to take anything away from any of the victims that I've talked about in the past. I honestly just think because so many of my family members are police officers and my dad was a police officer, I just, I myself remember being a young kid who probably watched too many movies, you know, and was worried about things that I shouldn't have been worried about at the time or at my age, but I mean, there was, that was a real fear for me and I just remember waiting up and I would go to bed sometimes after midnight because I wanted to know my dad was walking in the door and then I would go to sleep. You know, I remember getting yelled at all the time by my mom, go to sleep, Tara, you gotta go to bed, you have school tomorrow. And I would just, I'm like, oh, I just want to wait up for dad. So I would read and hang out in my room until 
I heard the door open. I think there's also just a different hell that you end up in when you take the life of a first responder in that way. Mm-hmm. I feel like res- they show up and they're not even thinking of themselves. No. They're definitely not thinking that they're going to fight a fire and get shot at. They're not thinking they're, yeah, that there's someone no. sitting there looking to pick them off. No. They don't plan for that scenario. They, that they're happen. just thinking about what they're going to do, how they're going to hop off the truck or hop off the car. And they're, they're there to rescue and save and protect. So when you take advantage of that, that vulnerability, you're just a whole nother different kind of evil. Mm-hmm. 100% agree with that. Yep. Because for me, you know, it was a very real fear for me, as I said, despite living in a small town as well, where things like that just didn't really happen. And then this here in this other small town that we're talking about, it was a heartbreaking reality for Mike Ciparini and Tomas Kachuka's family the day before Christmas, no less. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that it matters what day it is, but Mike left behind, and I just want to talk about the victims like I said I was going to. Mike left behind a loving wife, Kimberly, and three children, Nicholas, 20, who also happened to be Tomas's best friend, Casey, 5, and Kylie, 3. I can get through it. I tried getting through it five times without crying, and I wasn't able to, so bear with me. He dedicated his life to serving the Webster community, both as a volunteer firefighter for the West Webster Fire Department and as a police lieutenant with the Webster Police Department. Mike had a passion for life and keeping busy. In his free time, he enjoyed boating, snowmobiling, hunting, road trips, vacations, and lots of family time. So, seriously, he sounds like a guy our husbands would have loved to know. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Every weekend, he planned something fun to do with his family. He was also a dog lover and cherished his two boxers, Jax and Charlie, or Carly, sorry, which I had to note because we also have a deep love for our pups, you know? Mm -hmm. Courageous, determined, outgoing, humorous, and generous are qualities that describe Mike. He adored his family and would always help a friend in need. Again, sounds like a family we'd have loved to be in our neighborhood, any any of our neighborhoods. And hopefully I can get through this next part. But I enjoyed the sentiment and I wanted to share it with you because we always like something that's going to make us kind of laugh in uh, times of sadness. In her eulogy, Kimberly said, even though I'm surrounded by wonderful people, it's incredibly lonely. She said, my heart is broken. She brought up that two weeks prior, she happened across a YouTube video of a firefighter's funeral. And Mike had told her that if he happened to die in the line of duty, please do not have the bagpipers play Amazing Grace because it's (laughs) way too cliche, right? She said they laughed about it then, but when the funeral director came, she told him to make sure they played that hymn. If the cold made them out of tune, all the better. She said, Mike will be laughing. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. And I know that I'm crying right now, but I I had to share it because I thought that was great. That She still had that sense of humor. Yeah. As for Thomas Kachufka, the 19-year-old volunteer firefighter was thought of as everyone's little brother would often bring in desserts his mom made for the guys at the station. I I just remember, I knew knew those guys, you know? I I can picture them. As fate would have it, his big heart would cause him to be working that fateful day. As he wasn't supposed to be there... (laughs) Shit, this is tough. (laughs) Uh, But he selflessly bunked voluntarily so that the older members of the department could stay at home and be with their family. Being in healthcare... We do that. Yeah. Right. I get that. Right? No, you're crying. We're all crying. We need tissues. Uh, Sorry if I'm making you guys cry, but you know what? This is important. 
Born on May 16, 1993, Tomasz Marian Kaczuka was the first generation Polish American and the youngest of three brothers. He loved his friends and family, visiting Poland and helping others. Those who knew him remember him as an energetic, fun-loving individual with a sense of humor and a contagious smile. He enjoyed making people laugh and playing jokes on his unsuspecting brothers. He had an interest in civil service at a very young age, drawn to any profession requiring a uniform and helping others. He joined the West Webster Explorers Post at age 14, and in high school, Tomas enrolled in certified first responder and EMT courses at the Eastern Monroe Career Center in Rochester, earning CFR and EMT certifications. He graduated the Explorers program in August 2011 at age 18, becoming the youngest volunteer firefighter in the department where Mike had taken him under his wing. Tomaz's dedication and drive to, civil, to succeed in civil service serve as proof that age is not always an accurate measure of a person's character and ability. Hopefully, Tomaz's actions will serve as a guide for other young firefighters. I thought that was a really fantastic tribute. Mm -hmm. And it spoke a lot to his character and dedication. It's like, I, I hope that, you know, my own kids grow up with that kind of a drive to do something that really means that much to them, to work that hard, you know, to be. I think it's very rare to find what you love too. so young. I think it is too. As for Cheryl, Spangler's sister, she was an admin secretary for Computer Consoles, Inc. Her co-worker, Albert Gregorio, mentioned that she appeared to be a character straight from the show Mad Men. She was indeed an odd duck, but most certainly not a social misfit. It was more that she tended to keep her life private and dress like she was locked in the late 1950s. She was clearly efficient at work and always kind. I kind of imagine like a Penelope-type character mm. from Criminal Minds, you know? Uh, neighbors described her as reclusive, often tending to regard and not responding to greetings of hello. So she just... She just didn't want to be bothered. She wanted her alone time. I get, I get She's it. an introvert. But a good friend, Teresa Chicote of Rochester, said that she didn't have many friends, but that she felt fortunate to have been close with her. She said she had good values. She had beautiful values on family, but the intense friction with her brother was tough on her, which became worse after the death of their mother, which we can well imagine. I'm sure that was not fun to be in that home. Probably scared for her life every day. I would Sounds be. Sounds like it. Yeah. When she passed, Cheryl made all when when their mom passed, Cheryl made all the funeral arrangements. William just left saying that he didn't want any part of it. Which in itself isn't really that out of the ordinary. Everybody reacts differently to death, and so I didn't think that was too odd. This is the part that I think is a little bit interesting. Cheryl asked that contributions be made in her mother's honor to the West Webster Volunteer Firemen's Association. They had been so helpful on many occasions when their mother had to be transported to the hospital and Cheryl wanted to repay their kindness. It sounds like his sister did what she could to help others in her family, and although it wasn't mentioned in the articles I read, it seemed like the death of their mother, the impending sale of their home, and possibly this connection with Cheryl's choice of you know, directing the funds to the fire department all culminated in the day's events and the action of you know, the direction that this, this madman chose to yeah. take. Yeah, But doesn't it seem like... There's a little bit of a connection there, too, from her choice of where the funding would go to. They didn't talk about that in any of the articles. They didn't really connect it to anything. I don't know if they just... Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know either. But the note he left attached to a chain-link fence that happened to survive the fire, apparently. It wasn't helpful at all. In it, he doesn't discuss why he set these horrific events in motion. No answers, no clues to a motive. 
Instead, he just goes on a tirade about his old neighbor, Don Welsher, the mother of Don Yen, the 21-year-old who purchased the firearms a few years back, okay? So in his letter, Spangler claims that Welsher was the one largely responsible for the weapons purchase. He accuses Welsher of multiple scams against family members and others. The letter's completely directed at his contempt for this woman who had once been a friend and neighbor. That's it. Like, that's, that's what the letter's about. There has been no proof supporting any of the allegations against her, though. So during Dawn's trial, because, of course, there is a trial, she supplied this madman with guns. Yeah. The defense brought into question, you know, the letter, the relevant part of the letters, and this is what, uh, this is what they said. The relevant part of the letter, as far as my client is concerned, indicates that the mother dealt with Spangler, that her mother received the money to buy the guns. So in the letter, he writes, here's a little snippet. So when you're checking the serial numbers on the weapons, you might want to take all of this into account. On one hand, you have the daughter who was going to school and trying to make something out of herself and was basically duped, and the mother who sent her to get them, even by my standards, is a low life, make sure that the right one takes the hit for the weapons. Yeah, I know you'll probably screw it up anyhow, even when it's served up on a golden platter. So that's part of the letter from that he wrote. So angry. Just a little. When police found the body of William Spangler, they were able to retrieve the guns, trace the serial numbers on the weapons, and within hours, of course, they knew about the Gander Mountain purchase. Nguyen then admitted to police officers that Spangler went with her to Gander Mountain, but she claimed that the guns were later stolen. So, she lied. Perinello, uh, Matthew Perinello for the defense, for her defense, said that there was an explanation why William Spangler would be uh, with Dawn at Gander Mountain. If she was buying the guns for her mother, as noted in the letter, she may have been accompanied by him uh, for advice on what to purchase without knowing that Welsher intended for William to ultimately have the firearms. Okay, but it still begs the question, what the hell is a 21-year-old girl that knows nothing about guns going to Gander Mountain to buy a shotgun and a semi-automatic rifle? And who... The whole stitch just doesn't make sense. The whole story is just... Right? And as a clerk at one of these stores, are you not thinking this is really odd that this 21-year-old girl who probably doesn't know anything about these guns... Has an old man with her? Has an old man with her picking these, these out? Yeah, it's very... So he's saying that the purchase was for her mother? I'm, he's I'm saying, lost basically, from what I read, he's basically saying that she was going to help him get these firearms, so she had her daughter go do the dirty work, and then he she ended up making a profit on it from from the guns purchase. So obviously, like, okay, we'll get you these guns, but then I get two grand or whatever they agreed yes, upon, right? Yes, yes. Later, you know, they talk about. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. So many low lives in this story. I know. I know. So, I mean, here's another part in the letter. It claims that Don Welsher even went down to Pennsylvania to get him more ammunition for the Bushmaster because there wasn't enough ammunition that was sold with it. And I imagine they probably limit that. They probably say, well, you can only purchase a 30 clip or a, you know, whatever. You can't just purchase an entire arsenal for yourself. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I imagine. I don't know if that's really the case. But he said that she went and got him some more ammunition and made a nice profit on that as well. But as with most of his... You know what? Dickhead. (laughs) If someone's going to buy you a gun because you're a felon, they're going to try to make something off the deal. I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do, 
But why are you so angry that she made money off of it? No I, one else so, was going to buy you the gun. True. I almost don't even think he cares about the fact that she made money off of it. There's probably some other dispute that, like, threw them into a... And how did they know each other? They were neighbors and friends. Yeah. So they, they moved away between the time of the purchase of the guns and... Ah, uh, okay. I was thinking yeah. they moved away when he was in prison the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's, like... She went away. She was in college when all this was going down. She didn't realize this was going to come back to bite her in the ass. Yeah. And it, bit her, and it bit her big time. Purchase mm-hmm. things for felons, you no. idiot. Yeah. Dumbass. But, you know, with most of Spangler's letter, these claims were not able to be confirmed. And they tried. There was an investigation into the allegations that Welsher bought the ammunition, but they found no evidence. And when they did a trace of the suicide revolver, the thirty-eight, which he said he purchased from her personally... They couldn't find any information on that or where it came from or how it was bought. No. They said the trail ran, like, ended in Ohio with some other purchase and then, like, went cold after that. So that's suspicious in itself, right? So basically the police were just left with this typed up outburst from an unhinged man with zero answers. They didn't really have anywhere to go with that. Um, They kept most of the letter at the time out of the public eye, but they did release one line of the letter which reads, and I quote, I still have to see how much of the neighborhood I can burn down and do what I like doing best, killing people. On that note, William Spangler stopped and after typing close to 1400 words, nobody's, still nobody knew why. Why? And you know what? I don't even know that you always need to know why. This person was not right. Obviously had some serious issues and the real the real story here is that it was tragic and we need to figure out how to prevent it from happening again. So, and I'd be remiss, of course, if I didn't note here that the country was still reeling from the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting that had occurred just days prior on December 14th, 2012, which also involved a similar Bushmaster um, assault rifle that took the lives of 26 people, including 20 children between the ages of 6 and 7 years old. So, again, when all of this was happening, the country was still in the throes of, you know, the whole gun debate, which will probably never end. That's something that we don't usually like to go into either, and I know that we won't hear. We won't discuss the politics. We won't discuss the politics. We're not really, if you haven't, if you haven't figured that out, we're really not political. We don't, we don't like to bring politics into our stories, so you're welcome. (laughs) But uh, no one was, you know, no one was obviously in the mood for leniency here, and I'm sure they felt that an example had to be made, and I'm glad that they did. Dawn, who is now 25 and attending college, was arrested and drew the maximum term of 16 months to four years by the state of New York for illegally purchasing the firearms and selling them to a known felon. But then she still had to face federal charges, in which she was given a further eight years in prison on Wednesday, September 17, 2014. The sentence that was doled out was much harsher than the 8- to 14-month prison term suggested by federal sentencing guidelines, but U.S. Magistrate David Larimer said it was justified because Don knew that William Spangler, 62, had served time in prison for bludgeoning his grandmother to death with a hammer and that he had said he would kill again. And he said, and I quote, You know someone who was involved in the death of their grandmother? That alone should raise not one, but 100 red flags. Thank you. If you can kill your grandmother, who who won't you kill? I don't even know why he's out on the street. Thank you. I've got that in here later. Um, 
Prosecutors said Don had accepted $1,000 from Spangler for purchasing the firearms and for agreeing to lie on the business document. Don's attorney, Matthew Perinello, said that Don had believed Spangler wanted the weapons for hunting and could not have predicted what he would do. Bullshit. Yeah, I call bullshit on that too. In June of this year, Don sent a handwritten letter to Judge David Larimer asking for a compassionate release saying that she has underlying medical conditions and is susceptible to contracting COVID-19. Sucks for you. Yeah, super sucks. Sorry. Oh my gosh, can you imagine how many letters these oh, people must be writing? I can't even. Oh, I'm sorry. I That letter is just somehow at the bottom of my stack of the things The one to do. million letters I've gotten from all prisoners and inmates <gasps> saying that you need an early release right? from COVID. No. I'm sure. In her letter, she lists the number of ways that the prison is not clean and does not allow them to social distance. Well, you know what? Mm. And she cited that she was due for release this December, which actually wasn't true. Come on now, Dawn. They actually check these things. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to throw oh. this in here for good measure. Like, it's almost my you're time not gonna, to get You're out. not going to check this at all. You're just going to be like, sure, Dawn. They pack don't. your bags. You can go now. <laughs> but for real. I mean, this is what... If you're going to start being honest in your life, Don, now is the time when you're writing letters of, to judges asking for early release. Now is the time to come clean. Obviously, prison time has not changed Don's ways. No. no. Sorry. Still a piece of shit. Uh, so, uh, you'll be happy to know that her request for at-home confinement was denied because she failed to show any medical conditions that would put her at higher risk. So, I mean, she basically just says, I have medical conditions, but she doesn't have... They're not going to ask me to list them, and they're not going to check that I'm supposed to be released in June of 2021. Maybe they just, they'll just, they get so many of these letters, yeah. they're just going to stamp oh, it. Oh, this is Dawn, and she's known for her honesty, so we're going to believe everything <laughs> that she says. Sorry, doesn't work that way. I call you an Uber. Sit your ass in jail until you're released, and uh, I just, but you know what? So ultimately here, whose fault is it? Is it really the fault of the ex-con, or is it the laws in place that even allow for paroling and light sentences of these sentencing of these killers? They shouldn't be on the streets anymore. What was I? Sorry, I, there's so much that happened in the story. What was his original sentence for manslaughter? How much time did he serve? Seventeen years. Then he was out on uh, parole, or he was no, he didn't get paroled. Sorry, he was denied parole. He got out when his term was up, and then he was um, on probation till 2006 but I will note and I don't know why I didn't put it in my story because I thought that I did after all of this happened they changed the laws and they did a Webster West Webster review of this certain law that I should have written down to tell you the exact law that it was <laughs> but in there it mandated that anyone who killed a first responder in the line of duty would get a life sentence with no possibility of parole amen yes that was a really tough one too our heart our hearts go out to the families and everyone affected yeah that's but maybe the laws will start changing as, as they have started already i'm really glad to see that revision this is the kind of stuff that we want to share and shout out and hopefully because of this new true crime wave that's so this like flips though in the same way that when they talk about how so when like a first responder shows up on the scene and a police officer and they feel threatened and they shot the person and then all of a sudden you're under investigation because anytime you shoot somebody you're under, you know right you have to go through the whole mm -hmm. rigmarole yeah. and then 
this is why our first responders are scared. Yes. They're scared because of these situations that today that they walk into. So, you know what? Maybe they did pull their weapon too fast. And I'm not saying it's justified, but I can see how it happens. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so that's just another... You're in a situation where maybe you are outnumbered and you're the only one there and you have to make a quick decision. Because if your decision isn't quick, you're going down. Yeah. Yeah. And the odds are against you in, in most of those things. So, yeah, I hope just overall uh, the way that we can protect our first responders and our police officers and everybody and make them safe and feel safe that they can do their job in a way where they don't feel threatened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen to that. And these people who do bad things stay in jail. So we hope to see a lot of good things in 2021. We hope to have a lot of good things in our tragic stories. Yeah. And we will be shouting those to the rooftops and making sure that we do the things that we can do on our end in our little corner of our three feet to try to help bring awareness. So happy new year and F you 2020. <laughs> you say F you 2020. And in my head, I was, I was like, hopefully 2021 brings you all the joy that 2020 did not. <laughs> and you're like, fuck you 2020 exactly. with like both Peace middle fingers out. up. <laughs> and that just shows you our lovely differences in personality but until next year happy new year happy new year bye-bye